when Rebecca Nurse was arrested on suspicion of witchcraft on March 24, 1692. It's probably fair to say that few in Salem could have expected it. After all, the 71-year-old woman who was sickly and frail was almost universally considered to be among the most pious individuals in the region. Not just a member of the church, Nurse was among a select few who were considered to be visible saints. An individual so righteous and so awash in God's grace that she was a role model for other Puritans. Because of her particularly lofty place within Salem's community, Rebecca Nurse's arrest made some serious waves and helped to ensure that the witch crisis developing in Salem over the last couple of months would be like nothing that ever happened in America before. In this episode, we welcome Daniel Gagnon back to the podcast. Dan is the author of A Salem Witch, The Trial, Execution, and Exoneration of Rebecca Nurse. He's also a member of the board of directors of the Rebecca Nurse Homestead in Danvers, Massachusetts. Dan, I wanted to start our conversation by asking you, what got you interested in researching and writing about Rebecca Nurse? Um, I born and live in Danvers, Massachusetts, that was at that point in time, uh, the community called Salem Village. So I've grown up among the historic sites and monuments associated with the witch hunt. My first job as a teenager was working at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead, um, taking tickets and then later on doing tours. And so that was really my beginning of serious reading about the witch hunt. I knew it had taken place nearby and I had the general overviews, but that was really my start into it as a professional way, reading scholarly books about it. And my path didn't directly lead me back to this. When I went to college as a history major, and then graduate school uh, for history, I studied really the 20th century, specifically post-war Europe, which is not the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, But as soon as I was done with school, I knew that my first history writing project was going to be about the witch trials. I knew that that is what I would come back to, that that was really a subject that had always called out to me, especially from my time at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead, being shocked that there was no biography of Rebecca Nurse already, that that seemed like something was missing, that there was not any full biography of any of the victims of the witch hunt in print. And that just seemed like a a problem that needed to be solved. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who Rebecca Nurse was? Yes. So I think many listeners may have been first introduced to Rebecca Nurse as a character in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, But the true historical figure of Rebecca Nurse, she is born in England in 1621. Uh, She comes over here to Massachusetts as a 
approximately 14 year old. Um, and her early life was definitely one that was chaotic. They were a family of Puritans, a more radical Protestant group living in a country dominated by the Church of England that really did not tolerate the Puritans at all. And that's the main reason of why they came to Massachusetts was to practice their specific religion that many others had seen as being too extreme. With that, there was the hope to be able to do it peacefully, to find stability, which as the story of her life leads up to the witch trials, un- unfortunately is never quite found. That's something that's kind of always missing in her life in England when she moves to Salem. Uh, Massachusetts has its troubles of its own. She'll marry a man named Francis Nurse, whose background we really do not know a whole lot about, other than that he was uh, not very well off as he, as a teenager, was arrested for stealing. And when they get married, they'll start this family in Salem and then move out to Salem Village, the more rural community. And Rebecca Nurse's life appears to finally be getting stability as landowners, as the mother of a large family, and then she has not only children, but grandchildren. It seems as though that what they wanted will be accomplished. Of course, moving to Salem Village will put them into contact with the community and people who will eventually lead to her involvement in the Salem witch hunt when she is 71 years old. I've heard Rebecca Nurse described as a visible saint. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means in terms of the Puritan religion? Yeah, that's a very important term, a visible saint, and it does have a specific meaning to the Puritans who are Calvinists. That's their category of Christian thought, of Christianity. So what the Puritans believed is different than the Church of England and the Catholics, who believed that anyone who is baptized can potentially go to heaven through faith and doing good deeds, good works. The Puritans, being Calvinists, reject this, and they believe in predestination. That before you were born, it was already decided what's going to happen to you after you die. You're going up or you're going down, and that's already set in stone. There's really nothing you can do to change it. In order to become a visible saint, which is really the fullest membership, the fullest level of membership of a Puritan church, you had to relate to the minister some sort of profound religious experience that showed you had like a direct connection to God. And then you had to be voted in by the other members of the church. And in order to be voted in, they had to believe that you were one of the people chosen to go to heaven. So this is a very high bar. Estimates are hard to come by. In some congregations, it's only about 10% of those who showed up could reach this bar. And so Nurse being chosen as this visible saint, as somebody who had one of the most pious reputations, um, really the best Puritan credentials, it, it is just so striking that she would then be accused of witchcraft, which is the exact opposite. It really makes her such an unlikely case. So we have this extraordinarily pious woman who presumably most people see as being extraordinarily pious and sort of the usual suspects at this point. And Putnam Jr., Abigail Williams, and some others have some visions relating to Rebecca Nurse. Can you walk us through what happened exactly? We know about who first named her. Uh, before she's formally accused, but first, like, said out loud, 
that she may be a witch. Because after she's arrested, her son and son-in-law go to the Putnam family house and question them. It is within that household that the first accusation is made. When her sons ask these questions, and again, we're assuming that the answers have some degree of reliability, what the women of the Putnam family say is that they point at one another and they all say, no, you had said it first, you had said it first, you had said it first. The one truth we can kind of distill out of this is that Anne Putnam Jr. related that she was being afflicted. And she said she did not know who it was. She said it was an elderly woman who sat with her grandmother in the meeting house. That we have set out there. Now, you sat by age and gender. So everybody in her grandmother's pew would have been an elderly woman in Salem Village. I mean, that really doesn't narrow it down much at all. And so it's after she related that Someone said to her, one of the women in the Putnam family house, her, her mother, the hired servant, someone said to Ann Putnam Jr., oh, you must mean Rebecca Nurse. And that's when the name's first mentioned. What we see that's amazing, though, especially for someone of such a good reputation, is just like those who had a bad reputation, the moment the name is uttered, all of the accusers roll with it, and they start claiming that they see her too. Even though there seems to be no cause other than a fluke, it shows just how quickly things are believed, that there didn't even need to be a reason, and it's just taken up. One thing I want to also have you address is the issue that you often hear raised about the land dispute between the Putnam family and the Nurse family, and your thoughts on what role that may have played in these accusations. For many years, especially the 19th century books about the witch hunt, it's referenced to the Nurse family and the Putnam family having a land dispute, even into books through the 1970s will mention this, and it's entirely based on a misunderstanding. There's a three-way land issue with Francis Nurse, Rebecca's husband, Nathaniel Putnam, and different generations of the Endicott family. What's misunderstood is this has nothing to do with Anne Putnam, Thomas Putnam, that household. Nothing at all. They do not live near each other. They're all the way across Salem Village. And in terms of their interaction with Nathaniel Putnam, basically, the nurses and Nathaniel Putnam are allies against what Endicott's saying. They're actually basically on the same team. It's a three-way dispute, but it's kind of two of them are in agreement. And moreover, once Rebecca Nurse is accused, Nathaniel Putnam will defend her. So he clearly had no bad blood from this land dispute, and it's not with the right Putnam family. That really can't work as a reason for Ann Putnam Jr. to accuse her. After Rebecca Nurse is accused, and then the sort of floodgates open with the accusations, there is some pushback. And that's you know perhaps one of the first times that we see that kind of pushback, where people say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the backlash against the accusations? What's interesting is that once Nurse's name is mentioned, this is before she's been officially charged or anyone's filled out any legal paperwork or anything like that. It's just like at the stage of rumor, like that's being passed around. Her husband hears this, and he takes immediate action because he saw what happened to the few people that have already been accused before nurse, and he unfortunately kind of thinks he knows where this is going. 
that he finds people who are willing, and there are people who are willing, to support Nurse. He gathers uh, a few people, prominent people, um, including one of the porters who had been uh, a Salem selectman, to visit Rebecca Nurse, who's homesick. She is not out and about. She has not heard that her name has been mentioned. And Francis Nurse does this because he wants witnesses for when Rebecca Nurse is first told that she has been accused. He's already preparing a defense. Now, that moment works according to Francis Nurse's plan. He has these prominent, respected people, and they write down, Rebecca Nurse was surprised. She can't believe it. She says, what sin hath God found out in me to lay such an affliction upon me in my old age that she sees this as some sort of punishment from God and she can't figure out why she would be punished in such a way. She says that she had heard about the young afflicted women at this point in time and she had been feeling bad for them. She says she had been praying for them. And so she is just utterly shocked. But we see that people were willing to go and be witnesses and write down that document. Her family, from that very beginning on, will stick with her throughout this. The idea that her case is different from some of the previous accused is shown here, and it's also shown when she appears for her questioning after her arrest before the judges. Judge Hathorne and Corwin, we unfortunately don't exactly know who asks which question at her examination. It's always been assumed that actually it was Judge Hathorne that did all the talking. They start out the way they did with all the other accused. He tended to begin by asking questions not like, are you a witch? You know, is it true? But he would ask questions beginning with, so how long have you been a witch? Now I'm paraphrasing, but all of his questions have that assumed guilt. He begins that way with nurse, but as she stands before him in the Salem Village meeting house and says over and over again that she's innocent, that they actually have some openings, that they in their questioning will give her off-ramps with questions such as, if you be not a witch, basically, can you help us explain this another way? She is seen right away as a different sort of case and not one that is going to be immediately assumed as guilty. Let's talk about uh, Rebecca Nurse's trial. One thing that's interesting is that uh, defendants did not have legal representation, but it's true for Rebecca Nurse that she had a lot of family help. Is that fair to say? Yes. The accused at a criminal trial at that point under English law could not hire a defense attorney. They just didn't exist. But you could have someone act as your agent, you know, your husband, your son, someone to essentially run your case for you. They just couldn't be a professional lawyer. So she does have that sort of agent helping her along the way. Can you kind of walk us through how that trial played out? Prior to her trial, her family had really gotten down to work that spring to prepare evidence for her. They collected signatures, 39 signatures on a petition saying that her neighbors that she was a good person. So they come prepared with that. They come prepared with other testimony attesting to her good character. What's most impressive or or interesting is they also have such a well-thought-out defense that they come with people who will testify against the accusers as being not credible witnesses. At the beginning of June, she was first indicted by a grand jury that had to approve a charge where a defense could be presented. 
it was not sufficient, evidently, because she is indicted on charges of witchcraft. So at her trial in June, we are at only the second session of the court. The court, because it gathered judges from across Massachusetts, would meet, take a couple weeks off, meet again. It has only, in the first session, tried Bridget Bishop, who was convicted and then executed. There's been criticism in the meantime uh, about the methods of the court. There's an expectation that some methods might have changed based on this criticism. And the criticism comes from really the Boston ministers. They have concerns that the case against Bridget Bishop might not actually have been proven sufficiently. When Nurse's trial comes, though, it's the same as before in terms of like the way the court will treat evidence, what will happen. When Nurse's time came, uh, you'd have the king's attorney as the prosecutor presenting a case against you. She'd be standing up front. You had to stand for the whole length of your trial. In front of her is the bank of judges kind of looking out at the audience. The audience would be full. Uh, We have descriptions of people in the doorways, people in the streets outside trying to listen in. And you also had a 12-man jury on the side who made the decision. The prosecution presented its evidence, which is not remarkably different from the evidence against the other accused. You had people come forward who said that they had been attacked by specters. People come forward having fits in the courtroom as evidence is read. Uh, it's, It's really kind of at this point in the trials, what one would expect. And with her defense, it seems to be her husband. We know her husband's the one that circulated the petition. His name is on it. So we think that he, as well as her sons, were were key in collecting this evidence. Really get down to business. They have people well-respected in the community testifying on her behalf. Um, As I mentioned, the sort of attack evidence from the defense will really ruin the credibility of Abigail Williams, Reverend Paris's niece. She will not testify in court again after this session. The way the nurse family has people giving all these examples of her lying in the past, it it kind of just ruins her as a witness. So that's important going forward. That kind of takes out a key accuser from the future trials. And from what is presented here, it's convincing. We know it's convincing because the jury will leave and deliberate after they've heard this defense evidence. And then they come back and they announce their verdict, which is not guilty. Now, this is really a shocking and wild moment that up until now, there had been people tried two days before Nurse. You had already had Bridget Bishop tried, and all of the previous ones were were convictions, and kind of wasn't any serious doubt that they weren't going to be, unfortunately. So here you have an acquittal, it seems. We know that from descriptions, the afflicted accusers burst into fits. Someone on the bench says that they want her indicted again. Basically, they just want to charge her again. This moment is, in a way, bizarre. In a way, one of the most important out of the entire almost year-long length of the witch trials, where the Chief Justice, William Stoughton, talks to the jury. And he asks if they'd be willing to reconsider because, in theory, they weren't yet presented with all the evidence. There was a moment where someone testifying against Nurse had been brought in by the king's attorney, the attorney general, and Rebecca Nurse was surprised to see this person. When they came in behind her up the aisle, she turned around and it's recorded three different ways in three different sources. But the gist of it is, uh, why do they bring her here? Isn't she one of us? Meaning someone else in jail. 
it's a fellow prisoner. And you really weren't supposed to have fellow prisoners testify against other prisoners. The theory being that they'll say whatever you want just to get them out of jail. So she's surprised at this. Stoughton seems to take those words a different way. What Rebecca Nurse apparently didn't know is that fellow prisoner had falsely confessed to witchcraft. So when Nurse says one of us, Stoughton claims that means a fellow witch. And if she had confessed, she did not at all. But if she had, then you couldn't acquit her. So that's why he asked the jury to think on those words. They agree to consider this, and they they could have said no, but they agree and they leave, deliberate, they come back, they haven't changed their mind. They're in doubt. What they want to do is ask Rebecca Nurse some questions. They're unsure what to think. They had thought she was not guilty, but from the way those words are presented to them, they're conflicted. They ask Nurse questions, and she either doesn't respond or doesn't respond well enough. She's 71. She had been really sick. She had been in horrible jails. Trials lasted for hours. She's been standing for hours, and she's kind of hard of hearing. So whatever answer she gives them doesn't quite line up with the questions. Unfortunately, they go back to deliberate, and they change their mind to guilty, and they say... The reason we did was her not really answering our questions, right? That is what they used as evidence against her. All of these steps were possible at the time. The jury had the option to do this. They could have said no, but they did decide to humor the chief justice. And so that's what leads to her conviction at trial. With Nurse's conviction, and then even though her family tries to appeal to the governor and and such her eventual execution, which will be on July 19th of that year, so just about two and a half weeks after her conviction, it is an important moment. You notice that doubts start to grow after that midsummer. We don't have a direct head-on takedown of spectral evidence yet, but what you have is the entire nurse family, they know that she's innocent, and they will stop attending the church in Salem Village. Reverend Paris testified against her. So you really start to see pushback. She was a very unlikely case. This sort of case is is one that causes concern. As it continues on, we will see people put on trial that would have been a lot harder if Nurse had not been convicted. First of all, if Nurse had been found not guilty, it could have brought down the entire system because the evidence against her was no different than the evidence against others. So had she been found not guilty, it's unclear how they could have really continued. In a certain reading, you could also see it as kind of emboldening the court that if they found her guilty, they really can find anyone guilty and it can be done. One of the narrative threads that runs through our podcast is the extent to which fear drives a lot of this action. How is that the case here? I can see this in two ways, specifically with Nurse's case. At the beginning, when there are the afflicted accusers or soon to be accusers, they're afflicted first and then they become accusers second, there is this real scariness about their behavior, presentation, actions, like what they're physically doing is scary, probably to them, but especially to the adults around them. And with such a prevailing belief in witchcraft, there is real fear that Salem Village is being targeted. That's something that's hard for us to take seriously, but to them, it seems it. So we see that once Nurse's name is mentioned, it's basically that you can't take any chances, you have to accuse them of witchcraft, because what if they are a witch? I see fear also in another way, after Nurse is convicted and executed. More and more people will start to falsely confess. And to be clear, those who did falsely confess were going to be executed. The plan was to keep them alive till the end and use them as witnesses against other people. So by falsely confessing, you didn't think you were saving your life, but 
you might have been prolonging it. You might start to think that falsely confessing will prolong your life by a few months. They do that out of fear, the fear of trying to preserve their life. The conviction and execution of Rebecca Nurse seemed to plant the first seeds of doubt that would eventually lead to the end of this horrific crisis. But not just yet. Sadly, there would be more accusations, more convictions, and more executions to come. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.